So when you go to access a website, say, thehackermind.com, you don't really care what server it's on. I mean, you don't type in the numerical address of the site when we want to connect. No, you type in thehackermind.com and it automatically takes you there. Well, how? So there are these domain name system servers that keep updated lists, like tracking telephone exchanges that say, today the hacker mine is at this address, but maybe we change the ISP that's hosting the site to another server. No matter. You type in the hacker mine and the DNS automatically takes you to the proper page. Several years ago, based on my reputation as an InfoSec writer, I was hired to do some contract work for one of the 13 root-level DNS registrars. It's crazy, but the different extensions that you see, what are called top-level domains, or TLDs, they have to be managed by these different domain authorities. So there's the Internet Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers, or ICANN. And they're responsible for coordinating the maintenance and procedures of several databases related to the namespaces and numerical spaces of the internet, such as .com and .net. The occasion was a very credible threat against this domain authority on a specific date at a specific time. And an attack on one is an attack on all. I remember that the organization was in contact with other root domains as well. Fortunately, as the appointed hour came and went, no activity was observed. What I learned over the 48 hours embedded with this team is the amazing complexity of it all that dates back to the early days of the internet. And it's based on a much simpler time. Our needs today are much more complex. And as you've heard me say before, complexity is often the enemy of security. The more complicated you make something, the more likely it is that you're going to have a misconfiguration or a vulnerability that someone, like my next guest, can easily exploit. Welcome to The Hacker Mind, an original podcast from For All Secure. It's about challenging our expectations about the people who hack for a living. I'm your host, Robert Vimosi, and in this episode, I'm discussing how one might exploit misconfigurations in DNS and how to secure your organization from this increasingly popular mode of attack. So again, one of the things I'm doing with the hacker mind is trying to take back the word hacker. So what you might hear sounds at first as though, oh, this is a bad thing, but you gotta remember this researcher, he's exposing something that really the criminals could be doing. And more to the point, this researcher, he's disclosing it. So I'm kind of excited about this episode. We're going to be hearing from a researcher who is known for hacking into a military site, hacking an entire foreign government, and finally hacking the largest email service in the world. My name is Frederick Nordberg Elmroth. I am a security researcher and co-founder of Detectify. Uh, Detectify is an attack surface monitoring solution, which mixes a bit of application security with ethical hacking. So during that, I don't even know how long, the past decade, I've been on and off been 
playing around with DNS. So we're going to hear a term, ethical hacker. This term, well, it's hard to pin down. Of course, hackers are ethical. Why would we qualify it? Well, people don't always say criminal hackers, and that certainly needs to be qualified. But ethical hackers? That's right. I am an ethical hacker, so I've been participating in uh, SYNAC, I believe you're referring to, uh, as a bug bounty hunter, uh, along with uh, Bug Crowd and HackerOne and the, all of those. So I've been pretty early adopter of the entire bug bounty mentality. Uh, but you're right. Once upon a time, I've been working as a penetration tester as well, uh, mostly focused on, on web apps. It's either a good thing or a bad thing that you have to identify yourself as an ethical hacker. Maybe it's a cultural thing. Yeah, you have a pointer. Uh, I've been doing a lot of bug bounty, we can say that. That's what I mean by ethical hacking. I talk about this culture more in Episode 9 of The Hacker Mind. So, bug bounty, where you're invited to hack a company, and if you find anything, report it for money. Yeah, that's right. Even if it's a vulnerability of a piece of software, I will go to the vendor first. Uh, prior to making a public announcement, if I even do that. And it's kind of sad that we have to identify ourselves as ethical hackers. Yeah, that's a different discussion, I suppose. I'm a professional, and I do security, offensive security. So I'm wondering if Frederick gets a lot of questions about his line of work. I do, and i rather make myself clear up front before just saying hacker. If someone hear that that's not a part of the industry you get very mixed uh, responses so a friend of mine um, he have a friend he's a police officer and uh, we were out having beers and I said something along the line of oh I just uh, wrapped up this uh, uh, pen test on, on this company it was all public uh, but he reacted like what do you mean I was like yeah I hacked this company and his uh, red flags went off and uh, believed I was a criminal. Well, that was not <laughs> the intent. We've known that the internet is clued together. And so warnings about DNS misconfigurations and compromises, they're not new. I believe we the first announcement we made as Detectify in regards of DNS research was back in 2014. We made a blog post about subdomain takeovers, which was novel at the time. And uh, I haven't stopped poking since. Frederick was looking at DNS, and he was looking at the subdomains and the stuff that my limited knowledge tells me that if you own the top-level domain, you should own all the subdomains but I guess there are nuances. There are definitely nuances. If, um, if say, you get to compromise a CNAME pointer. CNAME, or conical name, is an alias that maps back to the conical domain name. For example, a CNAME record are typically used to map to a given subdomain. Say you have a platform as a service, and I get to create my own app and associated with your subdomain, then I don't have full control over the DNS space. It's more of an application layer bug, which is facilitated through DNS. And then the impact is, of course, more limited. 
But if you purely look at it on a DNS layer, say that your name server expires and I buy it, then I have full control over the DNS records that can be served. So this is where it all gets interesting. And DNS in on its own, it's redundant by design. So you have multiple NS records, right? So if one goes down, the other should back it up. That's, that's good. You don't want your site or your email to go down. But that can also be a flaw in the system. Because if one domain expires, there will not be anyone to tell you about it. Your domain will still be operable. And that creates a venue for attack. So here's redundancy in DNS can actually be a bad thing. So then once again, can come along and through some mean, get access to that faulty name server delegation and then get a split of your DNS traffic where both can read it, see when any incoming requests are hitting your name servers, or I can even respond to it and say that this IP address to your website, nah, it should go over there instead to malicious server. <laughs> so sometimes this can be as simple as a lapsed DNS registration. Uh, it can be. It really depends. I mean, you can have vulnerabilities in the uh, name servers themselves, of course, like any other, who knows, like a buffer overflow or something. Uh, I've been looking into, I guess we'll touch upon that in a bit, uh, but uh, uh, there is an opcode in DNS. An opcode is a portion of the machine language instruction that specifies the operation to be performed. Typically, you just query information. You read data from the name server. Imagine the, the name server is a database of all your DNS records. But there is an opcode, opcode 5. It was defined in, back in 1997 in RFC 2136. That little anecdote. But that uh, allows you to not only read, but to create new records, uh, delete existing ones, and modify them at will. So then you more or less have a full little oracle, a state machine. You can read, write, and uh, affect the availability in everything <laughs> on a domain. So that is quite rare. I have seen it a handful of times. Uh, so I developed a proof of concept, like a little scanner, which resolved the name servers for some domain and then tried to create a new subdomain with a random record. And if I then could see that random record when I was reading or querying the domain, then I knew that my attack had worked. I could then insert a new DNS record. Uh, so I gathered a ton of domains, must be in over 100,000 domains at, at minimum, probably close to a million. This was some time ago. Uh, but one domain stood out. It was nwc.navy.mil and its name servers. Random.mil name servers. But those name servers allowed me to write and create my own records. Here comes the thing with ethical hacking again. The Department of Defense, they have asterisk.mil, wildcard.mil domains. That's a scope for the Responsible Disclosure Program. So that's why I targeted the US Navy.
So Frederick just admitted to hacking into the domain. It just happens to be the U.S. military domain, .mil, and it's owned by the U.S. Navy in this case. Yeah, uh, that's right. I can modify their DNS records. So what I did, uh, you, you always need a solid proof of concept, just adding a random, say, TXT record doesn't say a lot. So Frederick got into the U.S. Navy using a wild card. That's one thing. Being able to prove it later, that's another. But I created my own subdomain, and the IP address associated with that domain went home to me here in Sweden, my home IP. Wait, what? Because I figured there is a quirk in SMTP. So if you are to deliver emails, what you typically do is to add MX records for mail routing. But if none exist, the email will be attempted to be delivered to the A record, the IP address associated with the domain. And as I now have a subdomain and it goes to an IP address, the IP is under my control. I should be able to start receiving emails, right? The stars are aligning. No kidding. Using a vulnerability and using a flaw in DNS itself, Frederick could have been reading email intended for the .mil address. And I remember this old anecdote. It was from a live hacking event organized by HackOne. It was in New York. Uh, can't remember the year. 2018, maybe? But then the U.S. Uh, Air Force was this, the target. And a friend of mine, Franz Rosen, he did something similar. But in order to show the impact, he signed up for Washington Post. Because if you have a .mil or a .gov email address, you're considered a veteran. And the Washington Post are then supposed to give you a lifetime subscription for free. And now I am in possession of a .mil email myself. So I did just that. I created... Yeah, my own account on Washington Post, and I have it right here, right now. It still works. Crazy things. So I wrote all of this in the report. Here is the this little opcode. I did this to these name servers. I created this domain, pointed to Sweden, and got this email, and now I have a Washington Post. That's a proof of concept. I thought it was fun, and they <laughs> thought it was really, really creepy. So now I'm starting to wonder, what did the U.S. military think of all this activity? Uh, so... In January last year, I got rewarded the Researcher of the Month by the DoD for this vulnerability. But I have, haven't, prior to this, announced how I went about the attack and what was contained in that report. So is this a systemic problem, or is it specific to how the ISP rolled out its configuration? It is a misconfiguration. Mod this opcode is still in use, clearly. But what should be happening is that you need to verify the authenticity of the of the query. You need a TSIG signature and all that stuff. You need it to be cryptographically signed. And only then should this be allowed. But there was no such checks here. I skipped that entire part. Completely unauthenticated. And worked. And if it works, it works. You only need to get it right once. So it's systemic. And how DNS records are actually constructed, but you can configure it to mitigate against this. And in this case, the mitigation was not done. Yes, that's right.
So over the years, Frederick has looked at thousands of companies, or rather their domains, and found that there were others that were also misconfigured in a similar way to the U.S. military. And on the topic of where we started with the expired domains and everything, and done something very similar, but on a bigger level. So ethically hacking the U.S. military is one thing. How about hacking an entire nation? Uh, so you mentioned top domains. In my world, that's, well, the .com, the .sc for me here in Sweden. Uh, Congo, the Democratic Republic of Congo, they have .cd. And this happened, what we discussed just a, some time ago now. So Frederick took over the domain for the Republic of Congo. The name server expired. So they had this redundancy with uh, six name server delegations, free to .net domain and free to .com domain, and the entire .com domain had expired. I was looking into this like, hmm, I, I can see the Whois record. A Whois record identifies the owner. You can make that information private, so only the ISP is identified. We enter the redemption period. That typically means that someone has forgotten to pay their invoice. But that happens all the time, and things just solve itself. Uh, but this was so peculiar, as it was the name servers for a top-level domain. So I kept my eyes on it, made a little script even to notify me on a status change. Will it become operable again, or will it actually expire and be up to grabs for anyone? This happens if you forget to pay your registration fee. And it can sometimes skyrocket to thousands of dollars if you're on an unscrupulous web hosting site. And this was, I believe, one or two days before Christmas in 2020, mid-pandemic. And it happened. The domain expired. It was late at night here in Sweden. It was, uh, I, don't, I don't know, 11 p.m. or something. And my phone just started shouting at me, like, this domain is now expired. What do you do about it? I was about to fall asleep. It's like, whoa, what's going on? Uh, so I went to Amazon, being my domain provider, and I entered this domain, scptnetwork.com, and I pressed buy. And lo and behold, it was available. So I was like, okay, let's let's go. Let's uh, let's buy it. Let's see what happens. So Frederick casually bought the top-level domain for an entire country. I can't remember how much it cost. It was like $19. But the nine dollars stuff like that's like nothing, a coffee. Uh, but I got it, and it became under my control. It's like, whoa, wait a minute, what did I just do now? What are the consequences of this? I didn't really put much thought into it, but while doing so, I mitigated a bigger attack. If this were to fall into the wrong hands, all kinds of crazy stuff could have happened. All things considered, this actually was a good thing. At least the Republic of Congo didn't have to pay thousands of dollars to a scammer. But what could somebody actually do with this top-level domain? So when you control a top-level domain, as you said, all subdomains under it, you control those two. So Google operate in Congo, google.cd, which means just like any other subdomain, now the regular top domains are vulnerable, all of them. So hypothetically, I could have redirected Google to somewhere else. Could have issued SSL certificates for google.cd. 
through means like Let's Encrypt. Um, yeah, and any other DNS traffic could even single out individual resolver requests. Like I know this organization have their own recursive resolver. It will now hit me or my name servers. And if I can do that attribution, I can target individual companies and say that for you and only you, this domain now points over there. Really scary stuff. Do you undermine the cryptography for HTTPS? But you also get to control where the traffic is routed to and who is querying what to an extent. You, you will see the recursive resolvers IP addresses, not individual, you know, people. But still. So, as an ethical hacker, you buy the top-level domain for $19 or whatever it was, and how do you unravel that? Obviously, you disclose it, but how do you transfer it back? Yeah, 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 that was super tricky. I've never been in that position myself, and I haven't really heard of anyone that's been. But what do you do? You basically compromise the foreign nation. <laughs> who, who do you go to? Who do you talk to? Uh, so that put me in, uh, I don't know, a weird position. I figured uh, that there should be some registrant for the top level domain. And I believe it was found on IANA, might have been ICANN, but there were two email addresses. So I sent an email and explained the situation. I own this domain now. Um, either I transfer it to you, but then I need the EPP validation code, or you reconfigure CD to no longer point to this domain. I believe I had a third solution also on how we could go about mitigating it. It seems reasonable. You report that you've obtained the domain so no one else could, and then transfer it back to its rightful owner. But the crazy thing was, it took a day. Then I got one email back with the first dude in this email saying, ah, it's not my problem, I referred to the other guy. And that's it. That's the entire correspondence. No one said anything else before or after in that official mail correspondence, but the vulnerability was fixed. I think it was fixed even before I got the re initial reply. So someone escalated it up the chain and it got solved very quickly, but super weird. But Frederick still owned the top level domain for the Republic of Congo. So what they did was they changed the NS delegations for CD to Another domain, I said I own scptnetwork.com. They bought scptnetwork.net. So now they had a domain under the control and everything was nice and fixed. So sure, I owned that initial domain, but it was now stale and mitigated. It was not in use by anyone. So that's how the mitigation happened. Whew. So crisis averted, right? Well, not really. Uh, later in November, remember, I, I told you this was in December 2020, November 2021, I got a tweet uh, directed to me from a registrar called Be Named, and they told me, oh, it's happened again. So now this new patched domain, spnetwork.net, was misconfigured, and entire TLD broke once again. Crazy. Domain registrations can be complicated. 
For a consumer going and buying and registering a domain for themselves, it's sometimes very complicated. You've got to stay on top of it. If you lapse in your registration, as we've said, someone can steal your domain name. Frederick's got a scanner that goes out there and tries to identify these misconfigurations and lapse registrations. What is that process like? Most of the time, I mean, I've made many different proof of concepts through through the years. I'll try different approaches, but I've settled now to be purely DNS and HTTP based. So there are different characteristics of this kind of vulnerabilities. Some are on the name server delegations themselves. Mm. So I'll say now that I know CV, they have six name servers, right? And I query one of these name server domains. I should expect all of them to work and be operable. Give me some kind of reply with some IP addresses. But if I never get a reply, that's a red flag in my book. That's something that will be a warning or an alert. Uh, then, of course, it's getting more and more popular with different cloud services and SaaS providers that allows them to put up something under your domain as a subdomain. Like you have a, a blog, for example, or you have documentation. And there are companies that manage such solutions for you. That is, everything is cloud-based. Then you still need to do an NS, no, sorry, a CNAME uh, pointer to that party. And sometimes, too, that can misalign. You might have a type in your CNAME. Right. Or there might not even be an account on the third-party provider that is supposed to be serving your documentation. When that happens, it can also be a venue for attack. Now we're getting beyond a single country's domain. Now we're talking about hacking the world. So say now you have your uh, blog, blog.acme.com, right? And you pointed to, I don't know, WordPress hosting <laughs> something something.com. And when I, as a regular visitor, visit that domain, I get the 404 in my face. It doesn't say me anything. It's just a defunct web app. But as an attacker, if I see that CNAME record and I go to that WordPress uh, hosting provider and I claim that, yes, I am indeed this subdomain, I enter my credit card. More often than not, that is the only validation there is. You need a CNAME pointer to this app, and it already exists. I have my credit card, so now I'm a legitimate customer, only that I get to serve content under your domain. Frederick makes it sound easy. Sometimes it is. So to summarize, I, when scanning, I limit myself to DNS and HTTP and no longer do anything who is related. Should be some special occasion if I really find an outlier somewhere doing more of exploratory research. So this, of course, opens the door to a supply chain attack where you can insert yourself into a larger organization or, as Frederick pointed out, a government and then be treated as a legitimate entity when, in fact, you're not. Yeah, exactly. So imagine now you have a content security policy and it says that asterisk.mycompany.com is allowed. They get to send request around and everything is fine. Any violation to that is disallowed and the JavaScript don't get to execute. But now say sub, the subdomain takeover scenario I just explained to you, 
you will be whitelisted. So you have penetrated the perimeter and now get to do all kinds of crazy things. I think this is what every pen tester says. Of course, it's very context dependent on what you get and to do and cannot do. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. Imagine that you have some Android app, for example. There are all kinds of crazy requests in the background that you and I as consumers won't see. But if you sit and analyze the traffic, there will be cases where you see that this domain did in fact not resolve, or it did resolve to something which is misconfigured in one way or another. And that is a venue for attack. Sometimes there's more benign reasons for having extra domains. Uh, even worse, say that you have uh, uh, you have a marketing team, right? And you want to do some A-B testing. So through Google Tag Manager, the marketing team add this little JavaScript blob to your website. Might be okay, might be fine. Now this company no longer exists, or it got bought up or something, the domain it's still there, or the JavaScript is still there, being served from your web page. But the rest of the world have changed. Mm-hmm. So now that domain doesn't work anymore. If I get to compromise that domain, I now have persistent cross-site scripting on the web page. Which means, hypothetically, say there's a login button somewhere, can redirect that, send over the credentials to my CNC server or similar. Imagine all the ad companies out there. There are so many advertisements from all. You, you've seen the block lists for your pie hole or your browser extension, maybe. They're huge with just tons and tons of domains. What if one of those expire or get misconfigured? You know, the, the sky is really the limit. But the limit is kind of narrowed down to what target you manage to compromise. That's the entire thing about supply chain attacks. You can do some preliminary uh, reconnaissance to figure out who is using what. Mm-hmm. But more often than not, there will be side effects. And that's very hard to predict when playing around with uh, domains and DNS. So I wondered if these are things that IT departments should be doing their best to mitigate. Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I am in the business of protecting my customer's attack surface, and this is attack surface. So I would say reduce it to its bare minimum. If you don't need to expose something on the internet, then don't do it. And if you are exposing someone something to the internet, then make sure that it's operable and up to date. And it goes as far as looking into your Google Tag Manager, looking at your content security policy headers, maybe even have a split between, say, which services should be internal to you in your network and not expose those internal IPs out to the greater internet, have like a split horizon DNS setup. Zero trust is a good way to go, but there's still ways to go, I believe, in the industry as a whole. So again, I'm wondering if people just aren't thinking of domains as an attack surface. I believe so. I mean, if you have a domain and it doesn't resolve anywhere, you go to it in your web browser and all you see is like a generic error page from Chrome. It won't tell you the DNS errors if there are any. It will just say, oh, this domain does not exist. 
But in reality, it might very well exist, but just be completely misconfigured on a DNS layer. So you need something or someone, the tooling, the monitoring to make sure that everything is working as intended. And it doesn't just go for businesses, but everything, everything that touches DNS. It's that old joke. Oh, it's not DNS. It can't be DNS. Uh, it was DNS. I am willing to agree. Okay, this might come across as a really dumb question, but it might come up. We're, we're not talking about the difference between IPv4, which is what the internet currently uses today, and IPv6, which we're starting to transition over to. The, the main difference is that IPv4, we've run out of domain addresses in that space, but in IPv6, it's unlimited. Some people have said it compares to the number of grains of sand on the earth. Oh, that's a different can of worms. Yeah. Uh, so purely on a DNS, through, how should I phrase it? Through name server delegations and that stuff. It works with any kind of transport protocol, be it IPv4 or IPv6. Of course, for IPv6, both the client and the server need to be compatible with it. Can assume that everything is compatible with IPv4 in this time and age. Uh, but there are differences when it comes to, say, SPF policies and how reverse DNS works and uh, a lot of stuff around that. An SPF policy or sender policy framework is an email authentication protocol and it's part of the email cybersecurity that's used to stop phishing attacks. It allows your company or organization to specify who is allowed to send email on behalf of your domain. So if you have, say, show.io, the search engine for the internet, they've indexed and port scanned all the IP addresses on the internet, IPv4. Because of the size of it, it's only 4.2 billion addresses. You can do an exhaustive search and continuously make sure that things are up to date. With IP version 6, you can't really do that. Mm -hmm. uh, it's 2 to the power 128. That's a vastly superior number to the number of atoms in the universe. So it's a huge, huge amount of possible IPv6 addresses. So you can't really scan it that way. But there are quirks in DNS for how reverse DNS lookups work when it comes to pointer six records. I believe it was research back in 2012. Oh, I cannot remember his name, but there are ways. So if you want the domain name from an IP address, that's the reverse part. So you can ask the domain name system, hey, give me a domain for this IP. What happens behind the scene for a regular IPv4 is that a query will be sent to a really crazy domain. It's like the IP address reversed dot in dash ADDR dot ARPA. And you will be asking for a PTR record. A PTR record, also known as a pointer record, is a piece of information that is attached to an email message. The purpose of this PTR record is to verify that the sender matches the IP address it claims to be using. This email ID check process is also known as reverse DNS lookup. That is the container for the host name of the IP. Right. And that you can do, and you will get some domain back. 
most of the time. In IPv6, this doesn't work. It's a bit different. So instead, you split up this 128 uh, bits of the IPv6 address. And you split them up in chunks of four bytes. So you only have 16 possible uh, combinations. But then you have a whole bunch of them online to one another. So it forms like a really, really long domain name where every subdomain indicates a tiny little fraction of IPv6. So now you can do a, more or less a, a divide and conquer attack. So I ask, hey, does zero.ipv6.arpa exist? And the internet will say, no, it doesn't. Now I have already reduced a whole bunch of entropy. I know that that's a venue I should not go down on. Mm -hmm. Eventually, I will find that 2.ipv6.arpa do exist. OK, very nice. Now we have reduced four bits of entropy from the IPv6 address. We go down the chain. And what will you will end up uh, getting at the very end is, of course, the reverse, uh, the name of the IPv6 addresses, the reverse DNS lookup of IPv6. So for all the many addresses available in IPv6, Friedrich has walked us through a way to basically winnow it down to just a few that you need to worry about. But here's the trick. So you don't necessarily get an I or these uh, PTR records back. The only thing you might have to go on is that you get a dif difference in the opcodes. So you might get a no error all the way down to some crazy address which signals to you that this IPv6 exists somewhere on the internet connected to some domain. I believe it's like a bike or an implementation. I wouldn't even call it bike, but uh, an oversight in how DNS is designed in this regard. So you can, in ways, figure out which IPv6 addresses are in use out on the internet without actually getting the reverse name back. Well, that's a different can of worms entirely, doing reconnaissance in IPv6 through DNS. It's very possible, though. There was a talk, I believe, in uh, the Chaos Communication Congress in 2017 or 18 about this topic. So there are some references out there. The thing is, none of this that we've talked about so far is particularly new. In fact, we've known how to do some of these things since, well, Edward Snowden back in 2013. Oh, yeah. In terms of uh, supply chain attacks, I went off on a, on a tangent here. Uh, so the NSA have known about this. It was a part of the Snowden leaks. Uh, they called it quantum. It was in Wired uh, in March of 2014. There was a big article about it. Uh, and it basically uh, touches upon the things I've been discussing here, compromising name server delegations to all kinds of crazy things. It can even be that they inject packets. So when I query for a domain, it flows through some box on the internet, which is under NSA's control, and they inject a response fast to me, faster than the uh, real response. What ends up happening is that my computer will be trusting that response. So this has been kind of known. It's been out there, but haven't really been talked about. And that's kind of what piqued my interest as the 
the dates they kind of align when I started looking more and more into DNS was around the time of the uh, Snowden leaks. Can you go put, put me on this path? But just things like um, type of squatting and bit squatting, all of that exists very much so in DNS. And you can say buy common type of squats of your domain and make sure that no one else gets to do that. And bit squatting is mostly overlooked. So imagine, right, you have a massive, massive web service, say uh, G Suite, and you're routing emails around the internet. So me, Detectify, we have big use G Suite. So what you do is you get five MX records from Google that you need to configure. And Google with Gmail is absolutely massive. Everyone on the internet is using it. Right. So it just, if there comes a little cosmic ray or you have faulty hardware somewhere on the internet at just the right time, right, just the right place, a bit might be flipped. So a zero becomes a one or a one becomes a zero. And if that happens in the DNS correspondence, and I just happen to own a bit flipped domain, I get to control that correspondence. So this was actually the case with uh, Google and Gmail. Uh, there was, I believe it was 2016, uh, and I tried this attack. So back then you got three google.com MX records and two for googlemail.com. And all the permutations of the bits being flipped for Google.com, they were bought. Google knew about this. It's been mitigated since for, for ages. But googlemail.com was overlooked. So I got some bit flip variants of googlemail.com. It's like, hmm, is this actually a feasible attack? They have solved it for Google.com. So clearly, it is something worth mitigating. But they overlooked this domain. What happens if I, if I just do it? And uh, I set up a listener on port 25 for SMTP correspondence. I started seeing more and more packets rolling in from all over the internet. Uh, the catch here is I can't really grab the correspondence. I can't be receiving data. Not only would that be highly unethical, uh, but the email will also be considered delivered. So I can't just, you know, intercept random emails on the internet. Super bad stuff. But I reported it to Google and they fixed it uh, now since a bunch of years back, seven years back. So given that Snowden alluded to this roughly 10 years ago and Friedrich found this and reported it, why is it still a problem today? I mean, it seems like it's been identified. Why haven't we addressed it? The thing is it can't really be addressed. You need to look at it in its context. Now Google had a mishap and we whacked this mole, but this is a fundamental problem to how we do internet. Bits will always be flipped with uh, current technology and it just needs to be creative on where and how that can happen. For it, this to be a practical attack to pull off if you want to do that, then you also need the scale of things. I guess that's the biggest hassle, identifying such places where it's highly sensitive and highly used 
and then get the opportunity to mess around. But yeah, I I would like to say it's been mitigated, but I can't be certain because the sky is the limit and only look so much at different services out there. I bet there's plenty more that's been overlooked. So we created the internet for DARPA, for academic research institutions and the military to trade information over the internet. Then came the commercial internet. And I think to some degree, we've now outlasted the original schema. Maybe the architecture just doesn't hold for today's uses. <laughs> it's very high level indeed. Uh, we come up with workarounds for it. I believe you have a point there. I mean, we are kind of patching what's already out there, right. building on top of it. Just look at WebSockets for one. So you do this entire chain. You start with the DNS lookup to get the IP, and then you connect, you know, through HTTP to a web server. And then you start another socket on top of HTTP, a web socket. It's really an arbitrary protocol. You can send any data back and forth. It's bidirectional and asynchronous. So why? what's the point, kind of? Why not settle with a regular socket as it was intended? Uh, even more on the topic of DNS and domains, DNS over TLS or HTTPS. That's even crazier because first you kind of need to resolve the domain name. Then you need to make an encrypted connection to some web server. Then you post data to the server containing your DNS uh, request, like any other API. And what comes back is a binary blob of the DNS response. That's very meta, build on top of things that's already supposed to be solved, kind of. So yeah, I, I, I do believe you have a point. We are building more and more on things that work because we don't dare to share or change the foundation. Right. It seems very unlikely that we're going to rip out the foundation of the internet at this point. But uh, it's interesting regardless. More and more things are moving out to user land as well. And protocols are advancing in a way so that they are now kind of solving Real old use cases. I mean, just look at HTTP. It's no longer uh, TCP based. It goes back to UDP with the entire quick and HTTP three things. There was a reason why TCP was invented to solve all the hassles, but now it's considered too slow. So you reinvent the wheel of UDP instead. Instead of yeah. It's interesting. I'd like to thank Frederick for coming on the show and talking about domain hacking. It's an area that doesn't get a lot of attention, and it's certainly an attack surface that you need to start paying attention to. Organizations have a lot of domains and a lot of subdomains, and how do you keep track of all of them? Well, it's important that you do because, frankly, someone could take it over. Hey, if you enjoy this podcast, tell a friend. I bet there are others who like commercial-free narrative infosec podcasts. I have so many stories about hackers who are making a positive difference in the world. And be sure to check out Error Code, my new podcast that focuses on IoT and embedded security. Error Code is available now wherever you get your podcasts. Let's keep this conversation going. DM me at robertvamosi at infosec.exchange on Mastodon or at robertvamosi on Twitter. And tell me what you like and 
even what you don't. The Hacker Mind is brought to you commercial-free by For All Secure. For The Hacker Mind, I'm Robert Famosi.